0: the fancy internet people want
1: to hear us. it started? Yes. Okay. First phrase will okay. be. What? First, first phrase is in your chair. First
0: Alright. One day I'm going to go back and listen to all of these Tanya classes and cringe at all the stuff that I said.
1: You get a lot of like, okay.
0: I don't want to know that. <laughs> it is not good for your mental health to know about your popularity amongst people that are not part of your actual life.
1: That's why I'm hesitant to speak. It's being recorded, and everyone talks about how many people listen to
0: this class. But mm. nobody knows your name.
1: So no,
0: some true. people say, I, I heard you to the comments. Where are these posted? <laughs> where is Spotify? And, and,
1: um,
0: it's out in the ether. Okay. I, think this is crazy yes. I try to give this class more or less ignoring the fact that it's being recorded, but not always.
1: I like when we acknowledge the third party here.
0: Yes. Okay. Fine. Phantom Internet people, we have finished discussing you. Your existence will now be relegated to the recesses of our unconscious mind, and we will now begin. Thank
1: you.
0: Bye, guys. Okay. <laughs> the Gemara says, the Talmud says that fear of God is a, is a not such a small thing. It actually asks that rhetorically. It says, is fear of heaven a small thing? And the Altebis says, all, the, "All how much more so love? And so the, the thing that we were going to discuss today... There's two things. One was, why is love much more difficult than fear to achieve? Right? So the altruist question, um, that it's not so simple to turn your heart from um, desires of mundane things to a, how do they put it in the translation? Sincere love of God. Yes. Sincere love of God. In Hebrew, lavas Hashem beemes to love God with truth. Um, where the focus is on love and the argument is that if fear is so difficult, all the more so love is difficult. And So the question is, why is love more difficult than fear? That is topic number one for today. I hope to finish that and get to topic number two, which is this other idea. Moreover, the rabbis have also said that only tzaddikim have control over their hearts. Okay. There is a question that is asked in Chassidus, you may have encountered it, where there is a verse in the Torah that says, V'ahavta es Hashem You um, shall love Hashem your God. Um, that is understood as a commandment. What is a commandment? What is a commandment?
1: something
0: the correct it's something you have to do you are under a obligation to do so right so that means that something you've been commanded to do you have the capacity to choose to comply with or not because if you cannot choose to comply with the command it can't be commanded that means a something which you necessarily have to do Um, due to some kind of natural feature, like such as breathe, can't be a commandment. And conversely, something that's impossible for you to do, such as fly, can't be a commandment, right? Even things that you can do, but you don't really have volitional control over, right? um, Can't really be commandments. So what would be an example of something that can't really be a commandment because you can do it, you don't necessarily have to do it, but you don't really have volitional control over that. Okay, then I think of something you don't have volitional control over. You don't always do. You don't necessarily have to do it. You could be doing. You could not be doing. But you can't really control it. Can't think of anything. What? Using the restroom. Using the restroom. I think you have a volitional control over that gym past the age of like that, like Kind of.
1: Nah,
0: yeah. I no, no, can't. Yeah. I mean, you can't never use the restroom, but... What?
1: Fear.
0: Well, let's not use psychological things. Let's use first practical things and then we'll move on to... Fear pretty
1: practical.
0: Well, I, I, I realize that, but I want to move on. First start with, with practical things and then we'll move to psychological things. Can cool. anyone think of something? How about the, having children? Can you just v- decide that you're having children and voila, you necessarily have children? So can having children be a mitzvah?
1: Yes. It is a mitzvah, so how does that
0: work? <laughs> I want you to think about it. Before we... Well, I think about it. How is having children a mitzvah if you can't just voluntarily decide to have children? How can you be commanded to have children if you can't control whether you have children or not? Ah, very good. There are clearly things you can do that are likely to bring about having children. And so, the commandment is to do those things that are likely to bring about children until you have the requisite amount of children, Mm. right? That's the commandment. So, it is possible for it to be commanded. Now, it's possible you will not be able to fulfill the commandment, no fault of your own, right? But it's still commandable, does that make sense? Okay. Parenthetically, Parenthetically, does anyone know how many children one is commanded to have? Two. Um, well, it depends if you are speaking biblically or rabbinically.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Biblically, it is one boy and one girl who themselves are capable of having children, by the way. Rabbinically? But
1: you're saying they, they both have yes. the of having children? Yes. As the
0: rabbinically, rabbinically, the obligation to have children is to have as many as you can. Or, to put it more accurately, rabbinic, uh, there's a bit of a debate about this. Um, some argue that the better way of phrasing it is never to stop having children. But I don't want to get into that. But yes, there is, there is a rabbinic obligation to have children above and beyond the biblical obligation. Close parentheses. Um, so, there's a question that's asked in Hasidus. How can love be commanded? So, the, what's the question why is that a question i mean love is something that you might love you might not love and god says you must love me okay so what why is it a question of how do you can you command love why is that difficult to understand if
1: you don't feel something you can just, you can just create a feeling yeah. and you
0: don't have... No, you can't just decide to have a feeling right so you you can't, what
1: you you could
0: probably put the effort into. Well I don't want to go with the answer. I just want to observe the fact that this question is asked in Chassidus. The question is... The first person who I know explicitly asked the question was the Magad of Mizrich, the successor of the Baal Tov, and it's quoted in Hasidus, in Chabad Chassidus often. My impression is that it probably was not originated, it probably originated with the Balshemtov. but I don't know for sure, I don't remember seeing it in his writings, but I'm not an expert in his writings, so that doesn't mean anything. I know for sure that the Magid spoke about it. But he asked this question, how can you love God? How can you, how can you be commanded to love God? I don't love God, what am I supposed to do? Like, clap my hands three times and poof, I love God? Like, like, what am I supposed to do, right? If it's a commandment, that means it's under my volitional control. How does that make sense? There are answers. I don't really care about the answers right now, okay? I want to point out an interesting observation. This question is never asked about fear of Hashem, which is also a commandment. There's a verse that says, Uh, Hashem your God you must fear And Hasidus never asks How can can fear be commanded
1: Well Uh, isn't there the idea About how you can't Like you can't Dog into fear
0: Hashem That's not true You
1: can't dog into fear
0: Hashem That's not true What is it about your Hashem That you can't ask It's I believe what you're quoting referring to as the Mishnah. Yeah, the Mishnah which says that everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven. So, whatever that means, it, it doesn't mean about asking for... I mean, there, there are plenty of prayers that have been written asking for Hashem's help in growing in fear of Hashem. Um, so... I mean, that, the, the most simple, straightforward understanding of that, which is not Hasidism, which is like, like the most simple, simple understanding, is basically a statement about free will. Right? That, if we take fear of heaven as a stand-in for you taking the values of 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 the Torah, morality, of spirituality seriously or not, that is the only that that is the thing that is in your control. Everything else ultimately is in God's control. That's the most straightforward reading of that. Um, that being said, you know, spiritual growth can definitely be assisted by things. But so there's this question, like, which is like a meta question on Hasidus, which is why does Hasidus ask this question all the time about how can you be commanded to love Hashem and never ask the question of how can you be commanded to fear Hashem. It seems to indicate that a command for fear is self-understood, but a command for love needs explanation. Right, A command to put on tefillin to immerse in a mikvah, those are self-understood. Those are things you have volitional control because you're talking about your physical behavior, right? A commandment to have children requires a little bit of explanation because you don't have volitional control over having children. You have volitional control to engage in activities which have the possibility and likelihood of producing children, right? So you have to explain what the commandment is. For whatever reason, love needs to be explained what the command is. It's not self-understood, but fear seems to be self-understood. God commanded fear? Fear? Okay. So... That is going to be the lens to which we're going to examine the difference between fear and love. Why is the commandment for fear, as far as Chassidus understood, not require explanation of how it can be commanded? Why does it make sense that that's under your volitional control? And why is it that um, love needs explanation of how that can be commanded? What is When we speak about fear and love, other than just grouping them in a the category of emotions, what I want to do is I want to separate them out and, and understand that they're not just different, um, they're not just opposites, but they operate on totally different planes of our psyche. Okay? What, what do I mean to say? I'm gonna say Some things in life are different, like cheesecake and chocolate cake. These are different things. But we wouldn't think of them in terms of in opposition to each other, right? In fact, you could think of mixing them together in some interesting ways, right? Okay. Then there are things that are in opposition to each other purely on technical grounds, um, like, you know, something, If you, you have water and fire, they tend to have a problem with each other. So you don't want to put too much water where you want fire or fire where you want water because it's gonna, either one's going to evaporate or the other one's going to be extinguished, right? Some things we think a little deeper are really understood really in terms of each other. Right? So we think of motion going up versus going down. Right? There is really the same thing but inverted. Right? To go up is the opposite of what it is to go down. Right? Pain and pleasure might be another thing that you think about. Right? That pain is the inverse experience of pleasure. Pleasure is the inverse experience of pain. This is why many, many religions including Judaism will have of other religions, but I always point out that it's universal, understand that to free yourself of pain would also require you to free yourself of pleasure. They operate in the same space in your soul. If you experience pleasure, you are implicitly vulnerable to pain. If you can still experience pain, you have the capacity to experience pleasure. Hence, like, psychological numbness as a defense mechanism against pain has very serious ramifications about having pleasure later in life. Okay, good. What I want to point out is that Hasidus seems to understand that love and fear are not just two different emotions. They're not just emotions that are understood in opposition to each other, in the universe of each other. They're understood as fundamentally different parts of the psyche. And the way I know that is because when it comes to love, there's a whole question, how can I be commanded to love? Like the notion that I have volitional control over my love is like not understood. That needs explanation. And yet when it comes to fear, the idea that I have volitional control over my fear Hasidus just doesn't even bother to comment on that. It seems obvious. Well, that means that they're, they're just different parts of a person altogether. Okay. So what is that, that? What's going on there? What's the difference? I want to talk about fear that Hasidus does not talk about. Okay. Hasidus, as a general, does not talk about fear of punishment. Okay? But I'm gonna talk about fear of punishment because I think that's easier to understand. Because we're familiar with that in our experience very easily. And I'm also not gonna talk about love as is normally understood in Chasidis. I'm gonna talk about just old-fashioned hedonistic desire. Okay, which when Chasidis talks about love, it doesn't mean that either. But hedonistic desire and love are going to be similar in the respect that we this respect and fear of punishment and the fear that the Chassidus understands that the Torah is talking about are also going to be similar. So I'm going to use those as more familiar stand-ins. Okay. So here's the thing. If a person is faced with the possibility that something really bad could happen to them, and they do not feel fear, why would that be? There is something very bad that could happen to you and you don't feel any fear. Okay, fear of punishment means the fear that something, you're afraid that something bad is going to happen to you, right? So that's another fear of punishment. Like, like don't violate God's commandments because then it's going to hurt you, right? That would be a fear of punishment. But I could have it non-religious, right? Like, like don't, don't uh, drive too fast because you might get into a car crash and die and like, that's bad, right? And, you know, you're afraid of what's going to happen to you. Okay, so you're faced with this possibility, so this bad thing could happen to you. Why aren't you afraid?
1: How real it is to
0: you? Yeah, that's what it boils down to. How real is it to you? And this is very important, just taking a a digression. There is this other thing called courage. What is courage? As an emotion. What What is the role that it plays in the human being? There's this bad thing that could happen to me. It's very real to me, hence I'm feeling fear. What is the role of courage?
1: Standing up against that
0: fear. Right, right. In other words, to, to right, rather than the fear dictating my behavior, I have this other emotion that lets me overcome the fear, bypass the fear, stand in the face of the fear, etc. Right? An absence of fear is not an expression of courage. Right. If I walk down the street, that's not showing courage. I'm just oblivious to the fact that there's anything there's anything that could hurt me. Which maybe I'm oblivious because there really is nothing that can hurt me, maybe I'm oblivious because I'm being oblivious, right? But someone who's not aware of the danger is not courageous. They're just don't have fear. Right. So what does that mean? If I take the following things to be the case, okay, this again, this is on the level of just fear of punishment. If I take it the case <laughs> that self-preservation is a fundamental facet of our being, there are things that can harm me and I have an an right, and I add to that an awareness of that harm, right? As as not just a theoretical, but a genuine possibility, right? As that harm seems more and more realistic, the consequence that you have is you feel something called fear. Yes. Now. What is the thing that you have control over? You don't have control over the instinct of self preservation, right? That's a built in thing. We, that's just the nature of, of the human creature. The fact that things can actually cause you harm, that's just a fact of reality that you don't control, right? What do you control there?
1: Courage. Maybe.
0: No, I'm not talking about courage. I just brought up courage as parenthetical. What do you control about in fear?
1: Yeah, but courage is what's standing up to the fear. Yeah, but,
0: I don't, but courage is not the topic. You
1: could control
0: that. I'm aware of that, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about fear. What do you control in terms of fear? How
1: you
0: let it manifest? No. Let us say I am a soldier and I am going into a combat zone. Let's say it's an urban combat zone and I'm going in the classic uh, urban co- tactic of going in a group of three soldiers into... In, in going around a group of three soldiers. Standard practice um, is, so for instance, if you enter a room such as this room, three soldiers come in, they come in one right behind each other, and each soldier covers one third of the room. So they come in, and the first soldier, um, I think, I don't remember if they go around or not, I don't remember, but the standard practice, is one, so one soldier covers like up to here, the other soldier covers that wall, and then the third soldier's covering that wall. Okay. And now, so let's say I'm, I'm covering one third of the room, and I notice out of the corner of my eye somebody who looks like a threat in the corner of the room, the third of room that I am not covering. What am I supposed to do? What?
1: No. Nothing.
0: Nothing. That's right. Because not we have right. trained together. It's not my job, it's his job. That's it. Now, that person could kill me. Right? And what if I let that thought develop in my mind? Mm-hmm. What will happen to my training? It'll disappear, right? So in order for the training to kick in, what thoughts have to be excluded from my mind, or what thought right thoughts that this could actually kill me? And so soldiers are trained, and some more successfully than others, is that when they are in combat and they are on a mission, their awareness is entirely on the mission, their objectives, their responsibilities, and thoughts of what could happen to me are not admissible. And therefore, they don't actually relate to things as um, being dangerous. Now, what I just said is nice in theory, in practice it always work out. No, some people don't do that, right? There are people who seem very brave and they get they in, get, so people start shooting and they just panic, they just, right? And some people who may seem kind of wimpy or whatever and they're just able to like, out of sight, out of mind. The fact that this could kill me is just not relevant out of my consciousness. My consciousness is what's the mission? What's my responsibility? How many team members do I have left? What needs to be done next? Professional combat. Very There's a mitzvah in the Torah that it is forbidden for a soldier to be afraid in battle. Did you know that? How are you supposed to fulfill that mitzvah? that's a loftier level what's the more basic level I'm not disagreeing that's a very lofty level what's the more basic level
1: Focusing, training your...
0: yeah. it says you're not allowed to think about your life outside of the battlefield when you're in battle you don't have a family you don't have an afterwards there's what you're doing that's it you can control your awareness of things that is something human beings have an ability to control by the way do all human beings have an ability to control their awareness of things No. what are the two categories of people who don't have an ability to control their awareness of things?
1: Children.
0: Children and? Mentally healthy. Certain kinds of mental illness, yeah. And those people, by the way, are exempt from responsibility because of that. So, if you are not afraid of something that is dangerous, that is a result of a choice that you made to not be attentive to it. Which might be the right choice or the wrong choice, right? I'm not judging. In the case of words, right? According to Torah, it's the right choice. Not to be reckless, right? It's not. Don't be aware of the danger. It's don't be aware of the danger. Rather, be aware of your training, right? This is why your training is so important, in professional soldiering, right? It's not about how dangerous. About like what's the right way to approach this kind of a situation? We've drilled with this right. Um, and I don't mean to say that again that every soldier has that ideal, right? We all know that real life is extremely messy.
1: Okay.
0: Um, on the other hand. You know, when you are driving in the rain and there's a lot of fog, right, and you're driving the same kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, um, the same level of, of attentiveness that you do when you're driving in you know, an open highway on a clear sunny day, well, that's probably the, you're, that's probably being irresponsible because you're not attentive to the danger of driving in the rain and the fog, right? And the more you were, right, the more you're in. Because by the way, when does that ability really like sink in fully in the average human male? Do they want to age? Isn't it like
1: 30? They say, they say
0: 27? They say it's somewhere in the mid-20s. Like
1: 26
0: Yeah. I don't know what it is in females, but it's probably earlier.
1: <laughs>
0: Reflecting the idea that, that also Bas Mitzvahs before Bar Mitzvahs, a similar idea. There's thresholds in this, okay? So now, if someone tells you that if you do X, you're gonna suffer consequence Y. And Y is like a really negative consequence. And you are a human being, so therefore you have a strong aversion to suffering Y. And X is not worth Y. It's just not, whatever the X is. How come you can just go ahead and do X and not worry about the fact that Y might happen to you? Because you have not, what have you not done? You've not taken seriously, you've not been attentive to the fact that Y is a real, legitimate possibility, likely even possibility, consequence of doing X. And since you're a human being, you're an adult human being with a normal mental functioning, therefore, whose fault is that? That you didn't pay attention to that, you did not become attentive, you did not reflect on that sufficiently to take it seriously, that's yours. That makes sense? Now let's contrast that with desire. Who here likes coffee? Who here does not like coffee? Okay. I would like you to start liking coffee. How would you go about doing that, assuming you wanted to comply with my insane request?
1: I'd put good flavoring in
0: it. So you would... That's not liking coffee. That's bypassing. That's getting you to drink the coffee even though you don't like it. right? That's like someone saying, saying I want you to enjoy Shabbos. And like, well, I don't like Shabbos. It's like, well, we do a lot of fun stuff that has nothing to do with Shabbos on Shabbos to distract you from that you're keeping Shabbos, so then, like, fine. Right? But that's not the same thing. I want you to like coffee. I want you to get up in the morning and feel like, oh, I wish I didn't wake up so late because I'm not going to have my cup of coffee. I want you to have that relationship with drinking coffee. How do you start doing that? See how ridiculous that seems? Just start drinking coffee. And you might discover that you find it more repulsive than you thought. You might discover you like it, but you, there's no guarantee of that, right? I didn't say I want you to try coffee to see if you like it, I want you to start liking coffee. I do not like avocado. No amount of eating avocado is gonna make me like avocado. In fact, it will just remind me how much I dislike avocado. What am I supposed to do about that? I can force myself to eat it if I really have the strong enough motivation to overcome my dislike for it, but that's not the same thing as liking it. What am I supposed to do?
1: Give avocados to
0: other people. What? (laughs) Give what?
1: Give avocados to
0: other people. Well, I only buy avocados when my wife wants one because you know. <laughs> I have no, no need for them. <laughs> in, other words, what's the, in other words, fear is based on, again, I'm talking just the fear. Fear is based on this very simple fact. You, by your essential nature as a human being, have an aversion to suffering, punishment, harm. There are things that can harm you and the, the inborn response to that is fear. And the only thing that controls that is whether you have an awareness of the harm or not and you control your awareness. That's what it is to be a functioning adult human being. But
1: we can recognize that fear can be good
0: for us. I'm not saying it's bad. Oh, okay. I'm just saying we can control it.
1: Okay.
0: So in the case of a soldier at war, fear is bad. Caution that comes from training, good. But fear is bad, right? In the case, by the way, of like sinning, fear of punishment, you know, if we're going to just strictly with the notion of like... God wants our compliance and that's all we're going to go. That's our jivism. and The fear of punishment is quite a good thing because you know what? If you're afraid of burning in hell, then you're probably not going to eat the non-kosher food because it's just not worth it. And if you're not afraid of burning in hell, guess what that means? You're not paying enough attention to the reality that there really is an afterlife and you really do suffer for your sins. Which I know in Chabab we don't talk so much about it, but it's nonetheless true. People so that, don't... So
1: that- a way to then start liking coffee like because like you in the same way like you can recognize that beer can be good for you like you know you won't touch a snake because it could bite you yeah this, you know you could like coffee because it can help you stay awake or
0: but no but I don't mean see a value in it and utilitarianism I I mean, want you to yeah. actually desire it yeah and the problem is because desire is actually a totally different psychological process nothing to do with awareness that's the thing, is that the fuse, remember the fuse went out yesterday? The fuse on fear is awareness. And we control awareness. We can be better at worse, but we control awareness. That's, that's one of the great things about being a human being. Desire, no, no, I'm just talking about this basically. Desire is not just a product of awareness. It is true that if you shut off your awareness of things, you will lose desire in those things. For instance, if your mind is completely oblivious to things you desire, you won't feel the desire for those things. Um, this is why, for instance, you might notice that when you're involved in something really important, you don't feel the desire for your favorite foods, but when you're bored, you do, right? Because you're aware, right? But, but, but that, it, awareness is not a sufficient thing just to produce desire. I like lots of things, coffee, for instance, and I don't like avocado. There are people who like avocado and coffee. and people who like, do you like avocado? Uh, yeah. So you like avocado, but not coffee, right? And we could go through every single thing and what we would find is that basically every, every possible combination of likes and dislikes can exist in different people, right? Some people strangely think this reflects on their individuality as a human being, which it doesn't, but we're going to pretend that it does for our purposes right now. That's because your desires have to do with things other than the fundamental facts of reality. They have to do with things that are specific to you, such as... I don't know, early childhood experiences, your genetics, um, you know, stuff like that, right? And so it's not so obvious, like, like, in other words, to desire something that I don't desire would mean to change something about myself. To fear something I don't fear means to simply be more aware of it. That difference is clear, Mm -hmm. okay? If someone says I'm not afraid of something, either it's not really dangerous or they're not aware of its danger. Right? now sometimes when people say they're not afraid what they mean is that despite my fear I have the courage to deal with it that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about where they're really not afraid of it but if someone says they don't desire something what you're saying is there's nothing in me that resonates with that thing which is maybe it's true there's nothing in you that resonates with that thing so then you have no desires for that thing and so to develop a desire would be to change the parts of yourself so that it does resonate with you and like how do you even go about doing that do you like go back into early childhood and like watch different cartoons with different commercials like I don't know like
1: why do you know people desire different
0: things? For right now, on this level, I'm just going to chalk it up to genetics and early childhood experience. Not because I think that that's necessarily the truth, but because it's good enough to illustrate the difference. And there are definitely many of our desires really do come down to that. Does that make sense? So you see desire and fear are just not operating on the same level of our, of, of, of our psychological makeup at all. It's true that they feel opposite because you desire, you feel, oh, I want, and fear is like you feel pulled back. And in that sense, they're opposites, but they're really just operating in different planes. In fact, we can say fear is a much more of an intellectual kind of an experience because it really is grounded in just fundamental awareness. Whereas desire is really is really much more built into, you know, kind of a, 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 the subjective way we're built to experience things that is nothing that, that, you know, varies from person to person. Good? Okay, now let's move to actual fear and love as discussed in Hasidus. Okay? So, generally, fear in Hasidus is not understood as fear of punishment. I don't want to spend a long time on this because fear in Hasidus is understood as a lessening of self. In the, in the face of something beyond yourself, whereas fear of punishment is just protection of self. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of something which qualifies as fear in Hasidus, even though it's not the most holy and loftiest level, okay? Um, have you ever walked in to a room and then realized that there was something private going on, a personal conversation, and just felt like, there was like the psychological, well, like you should just like back out very quickly. Has I ever had any kind of experience like that? What is that? That is a sense that there is something going on that has meaning, it has significance, it has importance, that pertains to the dignity of these other people and that you don't belong there, right? So that has to not do with the question of self-preservation. This has to do with the sense that human beings, um, and we can go deeper and talk about the godly soul, it has a deeper level, I don't wanna go into that difference so much right now, Human beings have a sense that there are just like every animal has a kind of a built-in sense of self-preservation, human beings have a sense that significance lies beyond themselves. And so when you are aware of something being significant beyond yourself, the amount of significance you place on yourself necessarily goes down. Okay, so think about it. We'll use some math. You start off with 100% of the significance is located where? Within yourself. When you're aware that something significant lies outside of yourself, it takes up, say, 20% of the significance. And so now how much significance is left for you? 80%. Okay? Now. That significance doesn't mean what you do becomes insignificant. Because again, here, this this conversation is very important. You don't belong there, therefore its it's significance dictates that you leave without interfering with it. Right. So your behavior is significant, it's just yourself is not the significant thing. Do you see what I'm saying? This manifests in things like respect, duty, obligations, um, um, all sorts of things like that. We can go higher into more profound experiences. Things like awe, wonder, okay? Um, you know, All these types of things, what do they all have in common? There's an awareness of something that has some kind of significance located outside of myself and therefore my own sense of my significance relative to that thing has to become readjusted. That is a built-in tendency of human beings. You can't control that. What you can control is, are you aware of the other thing's significance? So if I'm aware of your dignity, that automatically makes me feel more inhibited. In fact, that's a good way to measure whether a person has a sense of other people's dignity. Do they feel uninhibited around other people the same way they do in the privacy of their own room? That means they have no sense of the other person's dignity. Which, or, which usually is correlated with not having a sense of their own human dignity, but we're not gonna go into that as well. By the way, this explains a concept in Judaism called tznias. And I mean tznias in all of its manifestations, not just in what people wear. What is Snias fundamentally? So tznias shows up in the Tanakh as one of the three pillars of Judaism. I'm not translating it for a reason. So if you know what the word is, great. If you don't, we'll get to in a second what it means. There are three pillars of Judaism, the Prophet says. What are the three pillars of Judaism? One is tznias, you have to guess the other two. Good. Loving kindness. Avas chesed. Loving kindness. Good. What? No. It's
1: part of kindness.
0: Yeah. So that's one. Kindness is one. Sneas is three. What's two?
1: Nope.
0: mishpat. mishpat. Doing justice. Okay. Okay. Now. I'm not going to go into what the other two are but that's very interesting that all Judaism is fits under these three things. Um, actually, I will brave briefly. One is that you actually, avas Chesed means that you really care about people and you try to help people. You try to, you know, that thing is kind of self-explanatory. You can develop that. What is Asis Mishpat?
1: What is justice?
0: What is justice? You know what justice is? Justice is a rich man lends a poor man some money. The poor man doesn't have what to pay back except a little bit of money he's been saving to hopefully, you know, get himself on his feet. The rich man sues the poor man. You are one of the judges. All the evidence is clear. The poor man borrowed the money, the poor man owes the money. The only money he has left is this little bit of savings that he's hoping to be able to start a business and get himself out of poverty. What do you rule? But he to pay that he has to pay him back. And he cries and he pleads and says, but I'll be destitute the rest of my life. And as the Talmud says, let the law uproot a mountain. We don't care. There's the law and that's what you do and we don't care. You can see the tension between that and Abbas Chesed, love and kindness, right? So we figure out how to work those things together. That gets you two-thirds of Judaism. I think
1: that's what? Asseis doing,
0: mishpat. Doing, doing justice. <laughs> yes? Care about every person genuinely and really try and help everybody and do, right? While well, at the same time, keep the, keep the law in an uncompromising manner. Figure out how to do those two things. Okay, what's the third thing? What, what is... So here's interesting. It says with tznias, there's, there's a clause. Says, it doesn't just say beat tznias. It says, v'hat tzniya lechas im Hashem Actually, it's Imiel Walk with, Walk in a tznius manner with your God. What does that mean?
1: Maybe it's about like nullification.
0: Yeah, it's like, if God is here, where is the locus? Where is the center of significance? Within you or outside of you? Outside. And therefore, should you be doing things that draw you back into being the center of significance into the foreground? No, so Talmud actually gives examples. It says, therefore, a wedding and a funeral should be done in a way which is not ostentatious. Why? Because even though these are public communal events, they should be done in such a way which recognizes the real significance is found within God who walks with us in our practice of Judaism and not in ourselves. That manifests also in Tznias, in the way it's often used more conventionally nowadays. But this is why, it says in the Code of Jewish Law, even when you're in your own private home, and no one else is around, you should still act and conduct yourself as if you're not alone. Why? Because you're, you're not. And that can work two ways. A spiritually sensitive person senses they're not alone and acts in <coughs> accordance, and a spiritually insensitive person acts as if they're not alone to help sensitize the fact that they're not alone. Right? But this idea is, this notion of that there's a significance that's beyond me, outside of me, right? And as a human being, the sense that significance lies outside of ourselves causes us to feel that our significance has to be readjusted in light of that. And that's an automatic thing, the same way self-preservation is an automatic thing. So if I attune my attentiveness, my awareness to the significance that lies outside of myself, what will happen? I will feel that the centrality and significance of my own being becomes smaller and, rec- and recontextualized automatically. And do I have control over my awareness as a human being? Yep. So if I do not have fear of God, that's because I am not paying enough attention to God, that's it. And I can control that. Now, it doesn't mean I can control that in an instant, right? You know, I can, in other words, someone, let's just use the example of understanding, right? If you don't understand how to do algebra, you can control that. Now, no one thinks you can just decide now to understand algebra, right? But if you're reasonably intelligent, and you decide it's important to do and you work on it, right? you'll be able to understand how to do algebra. So similarly, if it's reasonably important to you to be aware of God, you'll try to be aware of God's presence and the result of being aware of his presence means you have a sense there's a significance that lies outside your own self and therefore you recontextualize the significance of your life in accordance with that automatically. We call that having fear of heaven, Yer Shemai. And that's like, yeah, obviously people can control that. It's not easy, but we know what to do. Some people are naturally gifted in that. Some people have to work harder, but it's something that is within your volitional control. But what does it mean to love Hashem? Well, okay. So I wanted to French that between desire. To love someone means, on a very very simple level, and this is where desire, it's not the same thing as love. I would argue that you can't, most of the, mo, even those uh-huh. desire and love operate in very similar spaces, they're, they're really fundamentally different, okay? I thought I was gonna get to the second point, but I guess we're just gonna spend more time on this, so it's <laughs> taking longer than I thought, fine. Um, here's the rule. If there is something about somebody that makes me love them, then I do not love them. That is the rule in Hasidus. Right. That means that, that would mean I have a desire for that thing. That thing is somehow accessible only via that person, so that person becomes a means to fulfilling my desire for that thing, whatever that thing is. That's not called love. Okay. So, according to Chasidus is it a fair question to ask why you love someone? No.
1: Yeah.
0: Wrong. It is a fair question.
1: It's a trick question. According to what you said,
0: it's not... No, cause, cause it, 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 because there, there is, a, there is a, a, a subtle but very significant distinction. Love is a feeling where you feel a sense of closeness and belonging and fulfillment in the, the togetherness with another person. That's what love is. There's different types of love, different kinds of love. Okay. To put this in a very, very, very simple w- way of putting it, love is where the I and the feeling that the I and you feels wrong. There's a, feel, a feeling that needs to be an us. So your sense of you being you only finds real fulfillment in being with them, and your sense is that that is in some sense deeply mutual. That can, that, now, In other words, that you find, you feel like being with the other person, you are more yourself. Separate from the person, you are estranged from yourself. And there's lots of levels and types and forms of this kind of experience. Okay? But now, here's a question, which is a fair question. Why is it that by some people I feel this way and other people I don't feel that way?
1: Some people are
0: sentimental. There's There's people in life that, like, I really feel that, like, my sense of, 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 of like I feel a sense of closeness to them, I feel a sense of care for them, I feel a sense of belonging to them. I feel like if something was going on in their life I should be there. I should it should matter to me. I'll give you an example, right? I, I have a friend and my friend was going through a hard time. If it doesn't bother me that he's going through a hard time, that feels it it, 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 it feels it it feels like that shouldn't be the, it should bother me because his life and my life are somehow deeply intertwined right there's a sense of, of bondedness of togetherness right that creates a desire to be closer it creates pain if there's separation it creates tremendous pain if there's conflict right this is called love I mean, again there's many different kinds of love there's romantic love familiar love whatever but but why do you feel that way about certain people and not about other people
1: effort not necessarily it's a combination of like time effort that's not necessarily true.
0: Some people it's it's effortless. And some people
1: time. Yeah, but so so important. That relationship is
0: to you? But that's circular. It's important because you love. with personalities? It does. It generally the rule is. There's exceptions. The general rule is like this. Imagine the other person is like the sun. They they're they are the sun. And you have a need for light Like you need to live in the light And so if you need the light you want, this, you want to be in a place where the sun is shining Their soul is like the sun You are a human being who wants to live in the light
1: That's not loving
0: them That's... Wait, 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 wait Wait, wait Okay right. I don't mean you, I don't mean that you You need to use the light for something else I don't mean that you need to read and so you need some light around. What I mean to say is that you need to be living in a place where there's light. And what are they? What are they?
1: Light.
0: They're a source of light. So what do you need? You need Why to be so you need to you need to think about it because the the problem is that, that if i'm gonna we're going to be nitpicky with wording it's not going to be to really think about it if i really need if i really need to live in a place of light and the sun is just a source of light then do i need the sun do i need the sun bec- for something else or do i need the sun which one do i need? what is my what is my need what is what is what is what is the sun if I need to read, and I technically I can't read without light, and so I need the sunlight in order to read,
1: you need to read.
0: so then I'm using the sun. Right. But I don't, so I don't need to read. I just need, I need to be in the presence of a luminescent body. You're a luminescent body, so I need you. That's what I need. You're the kind of thing that's, a soul is a radiant, luminescent, warm, beautiful thing in essence. And so what you're attracted to is their soul. Here's the problem. If you're in a room and the sun is outside, you don't get any light. Unless what?
1: Going outside. You open a window.
0: Well, you could go outside, which is a whole <coughs> other discussion. There is that idea of chasitas, but we're not gonna go there. You open a window, right? But here's the thing, if you open a window, you will only get the light as the window allows it to get through, not the light as it truly comes from the sun.
1: Yeah.
0: So if you have a small window, Then you have... Small sun. To you, the sun is small and dim. If you have a big window. So here's the thing. Yeah. That's all well and good if you have one window. What if you have two windows? Now you have a new problem. What's the new problem if you have two windows? You have a really big window. And what's on the other side of the window is a wall? Does it help you? No. What do you need if you have two walls with windows? Break them
1: mm-hmm.
0: You need them to be aligned. Okay. Yes? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. You need them to be aligned. Take two pieces of paper, make two holes, make a hole in each piece of paper, and then put the two pieces of paper on top of each other, right? You will only be able to see through the hole if the two holes are? aligned. And if they're only partially aligned, then, then you get a relatively smaller hole, right? So here's the thing. I'm a son and you're a son. I'm in a box and you're in a box. I need to be in your presence, you need to be in my presence. I need your light, you need my light. That's like the fun, that's the love itself. But what's the problem is that you're in a box and I'm in a box. So I can't see your light and you can't see.
1: Mm.
0: But what's great about our boxes that our boxes have?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the problem?
1: No.
0: So in order for me to love somebody else, either their window needs to move to align with mine or my window needs to move to align with theirs. So there is, so. In other, this is, in other words, I'm not loving the person because of something, but that something might be the window through which I have a sense of their soul. That's a very important and subtle distinction. You'll get married. Your husband will have all sorts of qualities. Those qualities will make him seem very lovable to you. Are you loving him for those qualities or through those qualities? A window
1: to his soul.
0: If they're, hopefully they're windows to his soul. And hopefully over the course of living together, what happens is those windows get bigger and not just bigger, because bigger is not really what's more important. What's more important is more and more aligned. Okay, but because we're limited beings, can you align all your windows with any one person? No, so for instance, certain kinds of love can only be with certain kinds of people and other kinds of love can only be with other kinds of people because, you know, just these, the, the psychological geometry, if it will, doesn't always line up. Okay, So if I don't love somebody, I mean, I can't control their window, so that's like out of the question. The only thing I can do is what, change around my window, right? But that means I have to change myself. But my window is my personality, my temperament. Like all, like, so telling me to love someone I don't love means to become a different person. Not to change my soul, but to change the shell around my soul. That's not an issue of awareness. So like, like how do you do that? Like, like it sounds obvious. If I say, like, become a different kind of person so that the windows of your soul align with the windows of someone else's soul. It's very different than just be aware that there's someone else who has significance other than yourself. Those, those are not the same question. So if you now you turn that to God, you say, fear God. It's like, okay, so be aware that God is real. Be aware that God is present. That's hard, but it's, that's doable because it's an issue of awareness. It's an issue of, att- of attentiveness. But if you say love God, are, are the windows by which God's presence shines through aligned with the windows of my own personality? Because if they're not, I can wait around for God to change his windows, but that's not me doing a mitzvah of loving God. So, what I have to have to change who I am as a person, the character that I, that I, ha- that I have, the personality, the temperament. Like, how do I do that? And that's why love is considered to be a genuine question of Because the commandment to love God is understood first and foremost as a commandment to change who you are to bring yourself into an alignment with him. And that, I think, requires explanation of what what exactly are we commanding you to do? That the answer is not really relevant. I don't want to go into the answer. There's many answers in Chassidus actually as to how to understand the commandment. Some of them are even backtrack and saying maybe we should understand the commandment that way. I just want to point out is the fact that the question is asked because commanding love means saying that you have volitional control over the windows of your own soul. Because you need to, because to love someone means the windows of your soul are in alignment with the windows of their soul, at least some of the windows. Someone did mention the idea of getting outside your box altogether. that idea would be Could also implicit.: Someone who doesn't
1: love you?:
0: Yes. Do you have three examples? You can love um, infants. They don't love you.: They don't love you. They don't love you. God gives a very special gift to parents that all things being normal functioning is that parents get a window into this, to, to see the, the, the soul of their children. Um, it gets closed up by a lot of stuff as the children <laughs> get older, but there's this thing. To be, to be fair, it seems to be that this kicks in for, for mothers statistically more or less right after childbirth and for fathers once the child starts being humanly responsive. Yeah. Um, In other words, there is a difference in that. That's a statistical average, it's not fixed. But it tends to be, you should just know this, it tends to be that fathers don't feel a strong, any kind of strong feelings towards their children until their children can actually demonstrate that they're human beings. I'm serious.
1: Yeah.
0: So like once the child can like smile back or acknowledge faces, then, then father's like, oh wow, he's like a real person, right? Whereas mothers often have that, sometimes even before birth, but certainly it usually happens that. Way. Oh, then again, it's statistical. There's some women it doesn't kick in until months later, and they feel there's something wrong with them, and that's not necessarily the case. But whatever. But that is a thing that Hashem put into people. But that's one example. Infants don't love you back. Infants have no concept of love. They can't love. They have no. It's weird. You can. There's. A, you have a window. It's a one-way window. Like you can see into their soul, but they can't see out of their own. And can't see anything out. Right. So, um, that's one example. Um, another example is when. Someone that you love deeply has um, rejected you. You might still have, be able to see, you might still love them and they might not love you back. Um, the, the third possibility um, is where they're no longer actively part of your life or they never were. For instance, possible to love someone you've never met if you can find windows into their soul that remain. So a person could fall in love with someone who lived in the past if that person leaves windows to their soul. Um, So people can fall in love with, I mean, I'll use Jewish examples. Um, You can fall in love with with, with the sages of the Talmud, and a particular sage, because you you get a sense of them and who they are and windows into their soul through, it doesn't have to be something physical. So that doesn't mean that they're having subjective awareness of you and you can still feel love for them. So, That's true. That's true. But their soul is not dead. So those are three examples where you can feel love towards someone and it's not predicated on loving you back. Um, And in the last one, it's not even with the hope of loving you back. Now, obviously, those kinds of loves feel very different. The love a parent feels for an infant. Is very different um, than the love that you feel for someone that you loved who has then rejected you which is very different than the love you feel for someone who has no awareness of you but you have a windows into their soul right but those are good Makes sense okay so is it easy to develop let's go back to the tomorrow is it easy to develop a fear of god yes
1: easy it's not easy, but it's, it's, not possible. easy. It's, possible.
0: It's, it's possible right because because w- Fear of God is a natural consequence of awareness of God. And awareness of God is something you technically have control over because you control your own awareness. But we all understand, right, that being aware of something, the more remote it is for me, the harder it is to be aware of it, right? That's why being aware of a danger that is likely to occur in the near future is easier to be aware of that danger than to be aware of a danger that's in the far future, right? Hence, somebody might be perfectly willing to engage in a behavior that will cause their life to end um at a at a young age that's decades in the future when they'll be very hesitant of doing something that's far less risky that could cause even a smaller damage in the in, in the near future or present. Right? So there's this question, there's this issue of that the further something is, the less proximate it is to my experience, the harder it is to achieve awareness. And arguably God is about the most distant thing from our natural experience of life. So Yes, we control our awareness, and yes, we have volitional control of that, but no, it is by no means an easy thing to come to a fear of God. Make sense? By the way, fear of punishment is much easier. Why? That's right, because you don't, the fact that all you need to know is that it will occur because there's, right, you don't need to, right, and the punishment is something that is easier to have an awareness of, like suffering, we have acute experiences of that, and we can project that on. God is very mystical and ethereal, it's hard to have a sense of what it means that he is present and he's aware of me, he's watching me, and he's important, and like, okay, but you can work on it, and we know how to work on that, broadly speaking.
1: Is that Is like a fear of punishment?
0: Strictly speaking, no. Strictly speaking Musr is about achieving a fulfillment of the verse um, that man was created in God's image. The the, 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 the great Musr thinkers have the same view of Khysis that fear of punishment is uh, an unbecoming thing that you might need in order to stop yourself from sinning and get society in line, but it is a, it demonstrates the failure to have any internal sense of what real religion is about. The difference in Mussar and Chassidus is there are profound differences, and and there are ideas of Mussar incorporated into Chassidus. There's not really so much the other way around, but it but Mussar is much more about. You should not be a, an animal. You should be a person. A person is created in the image of God, and that, that, that makes a lot of demands on you, and that's how you achieve true fulfillment in life. Um, yeah. Living the life of Musr is very, very, very profound. Not Hasidic, but still very profound. Um, but what does it mean to love Hashem? That means the, the channels through which Hashem's light shines into the world correspond to the same channels that my soul finds expression. That's a totally different thing, right? That's changing who I am as a person. Not changing the core goodness of my soul, but changing who I am as a person. Right? And so the Gemara says, fear is not a small matter. Love? Love is all the more so difficult. And then it comes along the passage, the the, the verse, and says, ah, it's near in your heart. Heart. Be playing not just fear but also love so it's not just it's against our experience the more you think conceptually what does it mean to love somebody when you don't love somebody that's like a that's a very profound thing like how do you make that change and again I'm not saying there's no answers but that's why altero says or that's why the Gemara says that if fear is so difficult then love is even, even far beyond that. Because whatever difficulty there is in fear, which is the changing of your awareness of God, you then have to then add on to that the work of changing yourself. Changing the kind of person you are, the channels to which your soul finds expression to bring them into alignment, your windows of your soul, and alignment to the windows of God's soul, so to speak. Okay, so are you up for doing that? Okay. What? Okay. So we have both a experiential argument and we have a, a, a Torah argument, right, that it is not so clearly within our control to just move from desiring mundane things as human beings do to an authentic, genuine love of God. And yet the verse says it's carved. Yeah, yeah, you could do it. It's up to you. Just just put in the work and you'll you'll get there. Alright, one last problem which I'll mention now and then is that moreover the rabbis have also said that only tzaddikim have control over their hearts. Previously in Tanya, I'm going to start this a little bit we have a few minutes left and then next week we'll go into more detail. We discussed that a tzaddik is someone that has a certain kind of love of Hashem which you cannot achieve entirely on your own. Alright um, just to give you a, an example, um, can you f- have the positive experience of a, of, of a genuine hug, a genuine embrace, all of your own initiative? Can you just decide, you really need a hug, so you're just gonna decide to have a hug. Can you do that? No, you can't, because a hug only comes about when there's y- the desire to embrace on both parties, right? And then that brings about this unique experience. A tzaddik experienced a kind of closeness with Hashem, a kind of love that can only come about because Hashem is responding to the tzaddik's desire to be with him and actually the tzaddik gets a sense of Hashem's presence. And this is analogized to like after a person dies and goes to Gan Eden, they bask in the presence of Hashem. A tzaddik experiences something along those lines while they're still alive. And that causes entirely different change in their psychological makeup. One second. So if a tzaddik is the one who has control over their hearts, which we can talk more about that means, and being a tzaddik depends on having this kind of experience which you don't control entirely, is it really within your control to really change how you feel about God? If you, in other words, the tzaddik is a person who has control of, of their emotions, totally. Which we'll explain next week what that means. To be a tzaddik is not just your doing, being a tzaddik is what requires assistance from God. Because you have to have that kind of an experience which can only come about from God actually showing himself and revealing himself to you in a way that is not normal in this world. You can do stuff, you can. You, you also have to play a role, it's just like a free gift, you have to like work for it. But that means if I can't control whether I'm a tzaddik and it's suddenly a tzaddik has true mastery over their emotional life, then I don't have true mastery over my emotional life, which means how can you tell me it's close to me to develop genuine love of God? That's the basic argument.
1: Okay.
0: What I want to elaborate on, next, next on uh, Monday next week is what does it mean to have control over the heart and why is that unique to tzaddikim? Okay. My question
1: is- is there, I meaning that experience of Hashem
0: embracing exists
1: anyways
0: that you only feel that like you're a tzaddik and you no. are doing that, or it doesn't exist? Doesn't exist. Really? Yes. Now there is. A, I'm using that as a metaphor. Like it, it's really not true. Not every experience of Hashem's embrace is is makes you a tzaddik. There's different kinds of it. It's a very specific type of thing. I was just using an example of an embrace of something that you cannot. No matter how much you work on it, you cannot have the experience of closeness of an embrace of your own initiative. That doesn't mean every time Hashem shows His presence to you and you feel Hashem in a way that's not just your own thing that's coming from Him, that automatically makes you a tzaddik. Within that, we'd have to discuss that there's different, there's different levels of that and different types of that and different people experience that. For instance, sometimes people experience Hashem's embrace when they're the depths of sin that inspires them to do but That doesn't make them a tzaddik. It's a different type of an experience. So, not every Hashem embracing you is it going to generate. It's going to bring you to the state of a tzaddik. Right. No, in
1: the perspective of being a tzaddik or not, is it saying that this experience always exists and only a tzaddik has the ability to?
0: Like, no, it, to it doesn't. No, 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 it doesn't. No. This, the experience of a tzaddik, is something that is granted. It's considered a kind of reward for one's service of God. I means you've achieved a certain level of service of God, and you are capable of actually. Mm-hmm. Integrating that experience, then Hashem may choose to grant it to you. There are other experiences which are always there. There are other senses of Hashem that are always there with us, and we're just not aware of them and attentive to them.
1: Right.
0: Okay. What's this, level? I mean. this is called uh, this, the, the, this is called ava mm-hmm. that it's it's called a Vedas matana. It's a it's a it's a gift that's granted. And then within that, it's, with specific, it, it, it's on a it, specific, it's, it's on a level that actually has a kind of stability to it rather than just being a fleeting experience. A person can have that without becoming exotic in a fleeting way, mm-hmm. but not as a stable thing. Right. Um, all right. Fine. I will see you guys tomorrow. Questions and answers. Please make sure you have questions or what will happen?
1: Sit there in silence. Awkward silence. Awkward silence.